Rob. What are we doing here? Aaron, I wanted to give a quick update um, on some of the things that I have missed. Okay. Because of Infinite Jest. <laughs> or as IJ, as I shall call it going forward. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've gotten to that inside reference yet. I don't know. They don't refer. Uh, actually, what is it called when it's self-titled again? We talked about the eponymous. Thing. Eponymous. There is some eponymous references in the book. Yes, I know um, that. I, I've noticed that, but I don't know. Have they called it IJ in the book? No, they do not. Okay. But I want to say that my father wrote a porno. The next season of that is out, and I'm not listening to it. Oh no! And I'm sorry. there is a third season of Serial that has apparently been released. Oh, I didn't know that. That I am not listening to. Oh man, I'm just completely fucking um, up your entire podcast game. Yeah, like all I, of it. I haven't listened to a podcast in like a month. Um, <laughs> so I got an invite um, last Thursday. Today's Monday, the twenty second, twenty fourth. Um, uh, to go play golf in Austin with listener Brent Kelly. Okay. On Friday. And I was like, "Fuck it, let's go." Yeah, let's and dance. And so that was uh, the golf went great and all that, and Brent's killing it, and that sounds and he's, it was awesome. Uh, I don't want to get too much into that. I just want to say that that was a solid eight hours of listening into Infinite Jest that I got done all in one sitting. Oh wow, you listened while playing? No, driving to Austin and then driving oh, back. Oh god, okay. I was like, isn't golf like the primary point of it to be a social sport? Yeah, yeah, I didn't listen to it while we were playing golf. I listened to it on the way there and back. Um, so yeah. I, I'm going to finish this before next week, I think. Uh, I am definitely not, but I am making good headway. I am most of the way through part three now. I am so definitely most of the way through. through part six. Oh, wow. Wow, um, you are on track. Okay, I'm trying, buddy. I'm trying. It gets more interesting. It does. I, I, yeah. Um. If anyone asked me if they should get into it, my answer would be absolutely not. Um, <laughs> there is no excuse for taking 27 hours to get interesting. Like, mm. um, and yeah. like I have the actual hardcover book. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, the audiobook doesn't do the uh, endnotes. Correct. And some of those endnotes aren't optional. Like you need some of that information. Hmm. I've read um, most of them, but the way I do it is I kind of compile them. So I just listen, and I'm like, what was the last number I heard? Oh, 56. And then I just, like, read the ones from 30 to 56, so I don't, like, have good context on them. Yeah, I'm on the last page of endnotes now, but, like, wow. the, if, you, if you look at the endnotes and, like, and it's one line, uh-huh. you can skip it. But I some see. of the endnotes are like 10 pages entire long. Entire novels, yeah. <laughs> it's an entire chapter is the endnote, and some of them contain information that you should know. So yeah. I don't know. If you're going to read Infinite Jest, you need the book and the audiobook. You really do. Yeah, um, okay. What you really don't need is Infinite Jest, if we're being honest. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting story. It's not worth how long it takes to get through it. That's my mm-hmm. so far. Although I still have, like, apparently the best 100 pages are left. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I've heard it gets pretty good towards the end. I'm, I'm already interested. And I, I want to finish it. It's just a matter of time at this point. You know, job, child, 
basically the only time I read is on the way to and from work, which means I do about an hour per day. And honestly, my my number one piece of negative feedback right now is that the audiobook does not have whisper sync. And that is the number one way to make me slower at a book because I can smash through a book when I can read a solid hour during the day via Audible and then read another half an hour to an hour that night. But instead of reading Infinite Jest, I'm reading other stuff for work at night because I, I, it's just, I mean, this is definitely a first world problem, but it's a little, it's a little shitty to have to like, okay, where the fuck was I in the audiobook? And then, okay, find out where, what page that is in the, you know what I'm <clears> saying? <throat> All my other books, most of my other books that I do Audible with have whisper sync. So you pull out Kindle, boom, it's on the page you left off at. And then next day you start it in your car, boom, it's audible on the page you left off at. So I miss I miss that for sure. Well, I guess no one wanted to go through a 54-hour audiobook and set that up. So. I guess. <laughs> if you're volunteering, I'm sure that Audible would love your services. I wonder what the process is there. It probably is somewhat manual. Um Although it may not be. I don't know. It seems like with the technology of like Alexa just reading text, there should be a pretty good way to like find chunks of audio that match chunks of text and kind of sync them. But I don't know. All right. That was all I had to say about uh, Jess for today. The other thing I wanted to mention is since our last recording, it's been a foregone conclusion for a long time. But it was officially in the books that the Seattle Mariners will spend their 18th season not making the postseason. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm sad. Okay. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. usual, how they they fell apart at the end of the season. And I knew they were going to. I said over and over again that they're not as good as their record. Uh, but when it actually happens, no matter how much you prepare yourself for it, you're never ready. Um, I see. Yeah. It's like when you're like, you walk out of a test, you're like, that did not go well. <laughs> and then and then you sit down and you get it back and you're like, uh, yeah, it's a C minus. Like, what else was I expecting? Like, <laughs> how, how, but it still hurts. I, it still hurts. Because like, when you leave the test, you know it didn't go well. And then that whole next week, you say, but maybe it did. <laughs> But maybe, yeah. <laughs> like, you knew leaving the test that it didn't go well, but you spent yeah. a week convincing yourself that maybe it did, and then you get it back, and it was like, no, it didn't go well, like I originally <laughs> thought. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't. Uh, yeah, that's a good uh, times. So, yeah, the, the Seattle Mariners, uh, the Seattle Mariners that, losing Rob. streak can now go to the, go, go enlist in the army and buy porn cigarettes. Um <laughs> If it goes another three years, which it looks like very likely it will. It can drink. It can drink. <laughs> and then another four years. And it can get discount lower insurance car, rates. Or car interest rates. <laughs> and then after that, it's just sad because there's it's, nothing else after that. There's nothing to I, look forward to. I guess to. 65, you can retire. Oh, uh, that's true. You can start pulling on Social Security. Assuming that both uh, the Mariners paid into Social Security and uh, two, it's still solvent when they become 65. I think only the NFL still flags itself as a nonprofit organization. I think baseball and basketball pay taxes, so they. So it's just the NFL that doesn't pay taxes. How? Do, how? 
I mean, maybe we should make that a topic one day. Like, how did that ever happen? Like, how all did that three come of them were NBA and and MLB voluntarily gave that up. Really? Yeah, because there was so much backlash about it. Um, NFL still still holding on to their nonprofit organization status, though. Huh? You know why that's allowed to fly? No, the people who make the rules really like football. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> th- there's probably some loophole that they can exploit by saying well we don't have any explicit shareholders or whatever the way it's set up like it's not a public shared shareholder company it's not a private like s corp or whatever so they probably yeah um and then the last thing that i want to say in the verbal vomit that is today's intro is that something i noticed while i've been editing it and i and i i don't listen to the podcast back after i send it to you so i just edit it Make it a file and send it to you. Yeah. Um, so they noticed while I was editing is that my mic sometimes just goes mono rather than stereo. And so it makes my voice only come out of the left or the right ear. And I had hoped that when I exported the file that that was going away. But I've been told by some people that that's not going away. So I don't know why it's doing that. Um, and I, I also can... don't know if I care enough to fix it. So, I think the fix would be pretty easy. I might be able to help with that. We'll see. Well, we'll talk about that later. I just want to say yeah. I acknowledge that the problem exists. I'm sorry. Maybe we'll fix it. I Okay, so I have an intro topic too. It's also pretty short. Um, somebody posted on the Facebook. Yay, somebody. I don't know how, um, how they feel about having them outed. I didn't as, listening to this podcast so i don't want to out them so i'm not going to mention who it is but if you want to find out um join the facebook group we accept everyone so you can find out who it is uh by joining the facebook group and reading their post but this person said i believe based on our last episode my stupid rant from last episode or the one before i can't remember um They said, do you think that the Senate and the House were created to balance the interests of populous states and non-populous states? That was my impression from school. My uh, short answer to that is definitely yes. Yeah, wasn't the compromise to be even able to create the government is that the small states needed to have some branch of government where they had equal representation if they were going to have another branch of government that was based on population? Yeah. So that's that's my my short answer is yes. My long answer is yes, but I personally do not think that's a an efficient form of government in the modern era. Would can, you just eliminate the Senate altogether and just have a house? Uh I good question. I haven't thought about it enough, but generally yes. Generally speaking, yes. Um, for example, it's the same conversation that you could have in Great Britain. I honestly don't know how they segment their uh, parliament. There's the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And at least historically, I don't, I don't know if they've changed that recently. I don't think they have. But the House of Lords was literally, oh, you're a lord. You have a seat. Oh, you were born to a lord? You're a lord. You have a seat. And the House of Commons was, you know, plebeians and and poor people and regular, quote-unquote, poor and regular people. Common folk. Um, And that's another thing where you would say, okay, I could see how back in the day, right, like 400 years ago, uh, 
the the you know monarch was the monarch and basically relegated responsibility or duties or whatever monarchical powers to lords over specific areas so they'd say instead of me having to go to lancashire i don't even know if that's actually a thing that's a made-up name that i just said that probably sounds british sounding name that's when you came up with you could come up with something way better than that it sounds like really racist or something could be racist or countryist or anyway uh but just like instead of actually governing the individual affairs of Lancashire would be like you the person of Lancashire are um you know you represent your people and you speak you know you're kind of my voice in that area and blah 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 and so it's a whole lot easier to just have that lord who is rich enough come on down to the uh you know, to the central form of government. Hey, what's going on? Oh, the peasants are uprising. Okay, I'll bring, I'll send you an army and we'll squash that, whatever. Right? And so then you get to the modern era when, you know, the British parliament was an actual parliament and there were some some elections and things like that. And it was like, it's hard to let go of that concept of a house of lords type thing. So they still kept that on. I forget, I know some changes happened recently, but I still think, the unless I'm mistaken, the house of lords still has a familiar familial component i'm not sure i'd have to look that up so don't take me on that but either way that's kind of what the senate was almost like if you look at it the senate is kind of the house of lords and the house of representatives is the house of commons and it makes more sense to say okay because each state was drastically different especially at that time um in various ways religious differences um ethnicity differences like we we pretend that you know none of us are immigrants nowadays but back then all of us were immigrants and people didn't like irish people and people didn't like catholics and other people didn't like uh uh you know quakers and other people didn't like so and so and so they they congregated in the state that didn't really like each other in a lot of ways and so it made more sense, in my opinion, in that case to say you're going to come here and represent your state because your state is more – they were very much more separate. And honestly, many of the states were cool just being states. Like, fuck you. I'm Georgia. Like, I don't need to be – not sorry, not that Georgia wanted to call itself Georgia, but I don't – I'm just going to be Great Britain. I don't need to be part of a larger thing, Right. But part of it was if we want to win and survive, we need to be part of a larger thing, blah, blah, blah. I feel like in the modern age, and this goes with the Electoral College as well, it's just not necessary and it's more harmful than it is good. It it just doesn't make sense for West Virginia and Wyoming to have equal parts of a very important large, large body of our government, federal government. Now, West Virginia... There's still so many rules and laws that are not, um, you know, under the federal government's purview that then West Virginia can do whatever the fuck it wants with everything else as long as it's not unconstitutional. If they want to make the drinking age 28, they can, right? That's not a federal thing. That's a state thing that the federal government basically tried to force states to go to 21 for. So they can do all those things themselves for themselves. But for them to have an equal say in, for example, the part of the government that will confirm every Supreme Court justice 
is doesn't make sense, in my opinion. So, this is kind of like a side to that, talking more about like the logistics of that system if you were to create it. Uh-huh. If they made it such that you took the population of the smallest U.S. state and the population of the entire United States, mm-hmm. and you divide the population of the entire United States by the smallest state, yeah. and that's how many total seats there were in the House. Uh-huh. There would currently be 561 and a half seats. I don't know how you would divide that half seat up. Yeah, whatever. Um, there Just are currently round. 435 members of Congress. Are you suggesting, Aaron, that we destroy the Capitol building in order to rebuild one to fit more seats? <laughs> uh, yes. And actually, that's there's there's actually 535. Members yeah, they're not all in the same of, room. Because the Senate, yeah, not all in the same room. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd honestly think that would be a better form of government. I also don't, you know, what I also wouldn't mind, and this is a little more radical maybe, but if you want to keep this concept of House of Lords, House of Commons type of thing, where you have a smaller house or a smaller... Um, yeah, house, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, that's that's a little more um, discerning, I guess you could say. I would just say, fine, there should be, and I, I don't know how you would do it, but you just say, it's 100 people, and it could be 100 of anyone in the United States anywhere. Well, it's not going to be that, so let's, I know. let's play a fun little <laughs> trivia game. Okay. What is the least popular state in the United States? I believe it's Wyoming. Ding, ding, ding. What is the second least populated state in the United States? <sighs> Probably like one of the New Hampshire's or New Vermont's or something. It, it's Vermont. Oh. So if you were to do it this particular way, Vermont has about 1.2 times the people of Wyoming. Uh. Do they get two seats or one? Is that point two not represented, Aaron? Yeah. So, and that's why your method would be better. Um, to just say, screw it, make it one house. And honestly, I have to do a little bit more analysis on how well the two houses function together. They're supposed to be in the Constitution. It's supposed to be like, well, the House of Representatives has the power of the purse, I think. I forget. Sorry, Mrs. Weber. And the Senate has the power of confirmation. Or the, have you invited it, her to, to our, our group? I don't know. Our, our podcast group? But the you know the the Senate advises and consents presidential appointments, and that's why you have Senate Judiciary heating hearings on uh, Supreme Court justices and things like that. So they split that up. So I don't know if maybe you'd have one body that then kind of gets divided along random lines. I don't know how you do that. What do you think of this bit of chaos? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Anyone who wants to run for the House runs uh-huh. and that the nationwide vote and the top 560 people get a seat so that's kind of what i was saying with like the that Senate. is absolute it's just, chaos it's just like, like the top you, 100 people well everyone everyone's going to campaign in the top five most populated states right because that's where yeah. you're going to talk to the most people and one fucking dude's going to go to wyoming and get the entire state and he's going to win but if a lot mm-hmm. of people start going to wyoming under that strategy then none of them are going to get in because there's not enough people there to divide that vote. But I, I think what I'd say is even take the state out of the equation. Would it actually be better for you if the people weren't divided among 
states, quote unquote, it wouldn't be better to talk to one state or another, right? It would be better for you to talk to the whole country. So 10,000 people sign up to run for the House of Representatives under this new system. Yeah. 560 of them, the top 560 of them of a nationwide vote win. Mm -hmm. You are one of the 10,000. How much of your campaign time are you spending in the Midwest? Um, so I, I think the method that I would choose is that you shrink that down by a lot. Look, we're already, here's what we're basically doing. Um, I am realizing quickly that this is not a good idea, right? <laughs> but you, you know, you'd have to tweedle it down or whatever. What I'm saying is it's like the same thing at the race for the president. Because you either... In most states, I forget. There's a few like Maine or something. I forget. Don't again. There's a lot of things that I don't want. Proportional voting. Yeah, that I it's don't a, want people to quote it, me on. It's Maine and is it and Maine? One other, it's Maine and one other one. Sweet. I think it might be Maine and Nevada. Okay, I believe you. Um, but you know, unless you're 48 of the states, you carry all or none of the state, and so. That's also just as dumb to me. Like for this, the, this for the for the presidential election. For the presidential election, yeah. right? This ten thousand people smorgasbord. That sounds shitty, but this idea that like you carry all or none of a state doesn't make any sense to me. Like could that's you, so stupid. Could you maybe divide the country with a computer model into five hundred and sixty-two equipopulation groups, Easily. and then have people run in those groups and they'd have to identify which area they think their message would most well fit and run there and you wouldn't have to be a resident of the area because the area might cross state lines it definitely there's going to be definite ones across state lines yeah for sure um so like each each of these equipopulation things is you know 5.8 million people which is the population of wyoming if you're wondering (laughs) 580,000. 580,000, yeah. I was like, it's not, it's like half um, a tenth of that. So, uh, New York City is going to have what? It's got nearly 20 million people, so it yeah. has 40 seats almost. Yep. In just New York City. Yep. And then another 36 would be Los Angeles. Yep. And that's kind of how the House of Representatives is, is kind of formed, except for. But each imagine state. the chaos, because like, there's yeah. going to be parts of Brooklyn that are like three blocks. That are going to yeah. be a seat. But that's kind of how it should be unless the state legislature of New York is gerrymandering, right? Uh, so they are. Exactly. They Every are. state is doing it, right? And so, But it's supposed to be these equal population type units. That's one of the things that we talked about last week was that 538 thing with the house forecast. They do a thing on what if we gerrymandered in different ways. And one of them is called... They don't put it on there, but the, the method is called a Voronoi, V-O-R-O-N-O-I. And it's basically a way to kind of create these equal po- equal population weighted um, shapes around a population heat map. It's not a hard algorithm. You could write it up in a few hours and run it on the entire United States in no time, right? It would take you, a it, second. It, that would put a lot more pressure on accurate census though like yeah sure like but even if it's close to accurate right not not even super accurate like if you get off by one block in brooklyn that's still better than what it is today which is just people trying to dick each other over 
right? Like that's just, that's just called being human, though. Exactly. So, uh, but I think from my my primary point is yes, that's why it was there. Do I think that that is great for the modern so, era? No. Assuming we do the 50, 560 equipopulation districts crossing state lines to get the most accurate possible model of the United States population represented by this mm-hmm. as we can. Yeah. Two-year terms in the Congress or uh-huh. in the House is what it is today. So I'm assuming we don't change that. Mm-hmm. Does that then mean that like the district would have to change. Are we doing a census every two years to get new lines? Or um, will they be the same lines for the 10 years between censuses? That's a good question. I don't know. We're getting too much into the details of this yeah. fabricated plan that will never happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, um, yeah, I don't know. But and, I bet and, you a lot of states would be very upset with this method. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and, and but at the same time, like, then you could also change it to not even have to be that five hundred and sixty. Five hundred and sixty was because you chose a small state, and we're trying to just remove states from the equation of the federal government, right? I think my primary point here is you can gerrymander the shit out of your state however you want. You can you could put. Your government, as long as it's not unconstitutional, you can divide it up however you want in West Virginia or Washington or Texas or California. Whatever you want, as long as it's not unconstitutional, you can do that for the way you run your state and the laws that that your state governs that aren't federal laws. But why do we give a shit about state lines for a governmental entity which is specifically not for the states it's for people well if we were one of those podcasts that had like a ton of viewers i would ask someone to go through all of our episodes and find out if that was the longest intro we've ever had yeah i mean i think it probably is Um, anyway but thank you for the question uh friend and uh anyone else that wants to join the facebook group should to have these discussions Okay, Rob, I wanted to have some fun. I, I feel like I've been a little cranky lately. I feel like I've I've kind of, what's the word? I've kind of just played t-ball the last few episodes and just ranted about some stuff. And this morning when I was thinking of topics, or even on Friday I think I was thinking of topics, I was like, I know, I know what we got to do. We got to do something about this Kavanaugh shit and all that. And, and then I was like, no. No. Chelsea and I had a little bit of discussion about it. My position's probably a little bit harsher than I think the average Americans, but there's not much to discuss. So why discuss it? If you want to discuss it, we'll discuss it on Facebook or maybe next week or something. But I just think, fuck it, I, I don't want to talk about that. Not because of the content, because I just am bored with myself of the topics I've been choosing. <laughs> it's perfectly great. It's a perfectly good topic, um, but I, I just don't feel like talking about it. So what I had been thinking about doing for a little while was a topic on why calculus is awesome. 
And so I spent the majority. It, here's what I want you to do, Rob. I want you to ask questions or have fun with it. What I'm hoping will happen is that listeners will have an appreciation, regardless of whether they ever took calculus. Um, and I also want people to walk away with a little bit of like how these things apply to our everyday life. I think going in this conversation, it should be uh-huh. noted that I took all of the same math courses that Aaron took minus two. I think yes. he went two levels past <laughs> where I finished my math education. Uh-huh. And maybe somewhere in those last two is where you develop this appreciation of calculus <laughs> that I must have missed. No, I think, I think the appreciation for me set in in calculus two, and I'll explain why. The topic that I'm going into is... A little bit of calculus to a little bit of complex variables, which is a class I did take after. But but um, but I want to split. I would split math into three segments. There is the everyday math segment. I feel like that goes all the way up to maybe even pre-algebra. I would say but, it goes to algebra. Sorry. Uh, I fucked up. I, I meant to say pre-calculus. <laughs> oh, then we disagree. Algebra. Yeah. Not even algebra 2, just algebra. Just algebra. So and you al- could even, even you could convince me, if we talked long enough, that maybe trig. I can convince you algebra 2. I think I could convince you better of algebra 2 than trig. Um, the way most math courses are designed up in that region is um, two segments. You've got algebra, which is just the core knowledge. Like, can you take this core knowledge of solving for variables, blah, blah, blah. Algebra 2 was more expanding that into the real world in various ways, right? There are a lot more things about how does algebra apply to figuring out your loan on a car, right? Things like that. Can you explain to me why our school district chose – this is random and probably uninteresting to most people – why our school district chose to put pre-algebra – geometry algebra 2 rather than putting or algebra geometry algebra 2 rather than putting the algebras back to back um because some of the algebra 2 is an application of algebra into the geometry space right anyway i mean i don't know maybe i think that's the reason i don't know i'd I'd venture to say that at least algebra 2 I don't think geometry, actually. I could pull that out and say for everyday use, you don't super need that. Um, there's some good stuff. Like, it'd be good to know, like, about triangles and shit. But whether you're good at knowing which, whether cosine is adjacent over hypotenuse or opposite there's over hypotenuse There's been a lot of real-life situations that Soa Katoa has come in and been helpful. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think knowing how to measure, like... If you know, like, no one had to measure in a hypotenuse. Mm-hmm. Like, that's pretty much the only thing from algebra that I think I still remember. Because all of those proofs and stuff. Yeah. Pythagorean definitely. theorem is, you know, super important. You know, it, it, you don't use it every day, but it's this concept about the world we live in that's important. Um, what I'd say for... And, and then you go into what I would call, um, like... Probably pre-calculus or even or calculus all the way through even complex variables, in my opinion, is what I would call like advanced mathematics. And then the 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 thing beyond that is and I don't even know what I would call it is like the art of mathematics, like 
pretty much anything. If you if you can do calculus, I I fully believe that you can do complex variables. It might take you a little while to grasp some of it, but a lot of it is very like innate. What starts to get intense is when you go into things like group theory and things like this that are like the foundational pieces of what the universe is and shit, it seems like. Or these guys who are doing shit on like the sparsity of prime numbers and things. Now, they would probably argue that it's it's all the same. Like at the end of the day, there's this this innate thing that they're all going towards. So we're going to call these three... I'm proposing to okay. call these three math, uh-huh. advanced mathematics, uh-huh. and then unapplied mathematics. Yeah, mathematics okay. without a current real purpose. That's, That's to say that point. one day it won't have a real purpose. I'd be saying currently knowing how far apart prime numbers are isn't solving cancer. Um, so, and, and that's the thing that's interesting. You'd, I, what I would say is you'd call them like advanced applied mathematics in the calculus range. And the reason why we feel like it's more applied is because it's every day. The distances between primes is actually very interesting for things like cryptography and things like that. So there are applications. They're just they're just more esoteric. They're, they're not like more... universal things. Exactly. They're, things that, like, they're using them to solve human shittiness, not solve not not to describe the way the universe works. Yeah, but what's fun, what's cool, and that's one of the reasons why these mathematicians love this type of stuff, is sometimes you stumble on shit that ends up being in the universe. Like the Fibonacci sequence is one of those things where it's like, or or um, the Mandelbrot set, for example, is one of those things where it's, you're, you're like, this is so whatever, like, how is this, who cares? And then you end up finding out that the way certain pine cones grow are precisely related to the same mathematics that are inherent to the Mandelbrot set. And it just so happens that math found out about it before it could be described properly in our universe, right? What I would say, though, is I feel like there's a huge underappreciation of this advanced mathematics piece. The advanced or the unapplied? The advanced. Okay. Because in my opinion, unapplied is still in many ways over my head. I like watching number file videos. I like learning about this kind of stuff. But in a lot of ways, it's very esoteric. And then even though it does apply to the way a pine cone grows, it's still pretty esoteric. And they're taking leaps that I would never dream of. It's like writing a proof. Like proving that this... You know, uh, you know, we talked about the Raymond the Riemann Zeta hypothesis in like the second or third episode or something like that. That's the type of thing that's like, actually, it has to do with the prime numbers. There's a, there's a, anyway, whatever. Um, but that's the type of thing where it's cool, and I love to read about it. Um, but it doesn't tickle me as much as what I'm going to talk about today. And what I would say, and, and here's the fun part. That's why I think my favorite course probably the course that really was like holy shit math is the coolest was calculus 2 and the reason was because i love calculus and i was really good at it but calculus is kind of like algebra it's basically a basic set of things and you apply them over and over and over and over again every once in a while you might get a word question but at the end of the day that word problem um you know, is a simple integral or a simple derivative or whatever. It's not anything insane. Calculus 2, probably one of the first, I think the first exam, I had a question on the test 
that was basically there's a steel plate in a pool that is this wide and goes and it's like one meter wide and it's uh you know three meters uh it starts at three meters deep and goes to six meters deep let's say or whatever the handle is at this location how much force and it's it's like being pushed on by the water basically how much force do you need to pull that handle off right and the reason why that's interesting like you you might just say well you just need water pressure blah 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 but the thing is is that the pressure applied to the door is different at every point along that door right so at one meter deep that thin line at the top of the door has pressure at one meter deep but that thin line at the bottom of the door has pressure at uh, what did I say? Three, four meters deep, right? If it's three long or whatever it is, right? So you actually have to use calculus. You have to use an integral. It's not hard. It's not actually not a hard question. But just the fact like, holy shit, that's so cool that we have these tools that normally a problem that seems kind of crazy, like, oh shit, the pressure is not uniformly distributed across the door. It's it's linearly distributed as you go deeper. And there's some things in the real world where pressures might be... Uh, parabolically distributed or something interesting like that or whatever. Um, And that was the first time I was like, this is really cool. Like, I almost feel like, and you know, another time one of our roommates came to me, I, you know, he was in Calc 2 at the time or Calc 3 and said, I'm trying to do this question on dropping a ball through the center of the earth and calculating the gravity on that ball or how long it would take to go through the, all the way through the earth and back through, blah, blah, blah. And you basically need to use calculus and kind of like integrating the gravitational field on the ball, but against different parts of mass. Because once it starts falling into the earth, some of the mass from the other side of the earth is pulling it back up, right? So as soon as you start falling into the earth, like at the center of the earth, earth's gravitational field doesn't pull you any direction, right? Because all parts of the earth are pulling you equally Away from the center of the earth. Blah, blah, blah. So, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's the fun part. <laughs> we're going to talk about something that I feel like most people don't know about, but it's like, they. I guarantee they use it almost every day. And that is called the Fourier transform. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you have to do it ever or learn it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I actually didn't learn it in my Calc 2 class. Um... The transform we learned in, in Calc 2 was a Laplace transform. Did those whatever. two. Did those two, yeah, okay. So what we're going to start out with is this simple problem of how to compress audio. Because that's what we do to make these episodes. So if you don't know, we typically think of sound as a wave, right? So if you're trying to envision, how would a computer store that data? I'm actually asking you. Oh. Because we're going to go through it. I have absolutely no idea. You're talking about like at the fundamental level zeros and ones, how it stores? No, 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 no. No, no, no. Not fundamental. High level. What do you think a file kind of looks like? Like 10 seconds of audio. What do you think is being stored? Uh, Probably like, I mean, it's got to record like the the... See, like, what I don't understand how it probably records, like, I can understand how it probably records, like, the volume, mm-hmm. but I don't know how it would record, like, the tone of voice, because, like... Ah, 
Okay, so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, my voice, your voice, creates pressure waves through the air. Okay? So a microphone, at the end of the day, like Rob, if you look at our audacity right now, you see these kind of waves popping up. Unfortunately, it's so zoomed out that all you see is kind of this these spikes. You don't see actual waveforms. If you zoomed in enough, you'd see waveforms, right? But um, at the end of the day, what you're measuring is it's kind of like the microphone had, well, depends on the type of microphone, but let's just pretend that a microphone has a little diaphragm in it. And as the diaphragm gets pushed, voltage goes up. And let's just say for the purposes of discussion, the voltage is between zero and one. So it or negative one and one, whatever you want to say. So the at the diaphragm gets pushed by my the sound of my voice, and it gets deflected by 0.6, and then it gets pushed the other way. It's deflected by deflected by 0.3 or whatever, right? So you've got all these little kind of sound waves. At the end of the day, it's just it looks like a wave. It looks like you took a piece of paper, pencil, and a piece of paper, and just kind of drew a squiggle, right? Um, that's what your tone of voice is. And that's what we're going to go into is, is actually the components of that, which is kind of cool, because that's what the Fourier transform is used for in one way. It's used for a bunch of other things, but that's one of the ways it's used for. One of the things it's used for. So now that you know that it's just like how much this diaphragm deflects, how would you guess it's sta- saved? Like at the end of the day, it's just kind of like wave that you draw on a piece of paper. I mean, is that just not what it would, would record is just like a single wave? Exactly. The problem is, though, and this is with any data, um, you can't record the wave because technically the wave is infinite, right? Between one, zero seconds and one nanosecond, there's technically an infinite number of kind of voltages in between those two depressions, right? So at a certain point, you have to do what's called sampling. So you'll see if you look at Audacity, down in the lower right-hand side, what does it say? Project rate. Yep. It says 44.1 kilohertz. So what that means is basically your microphone is sending a signal to the computer. It may be in 48 kilohertz. It may be in 44.1. 44.1 is pretty common. And at every point, it's sending a signal. And for every second, now, I didn't actually research this, but I'm getting close enough. For every second, it's going to save the depression of that diaphragm between negative one and one, let's say, um, 44.1 thousand times or 44,100 times. Okay, so you can actually see if you zoom in enough in Audacity, you would see those actual points. Now, they probably interpolate for you so it looks like a wave, but at the end of the day, it's these 44 thousand points in one second and it just keeps recording those right now typically to make it accurate you need a certain amount of data so what they could do if they wanted to was use bits so 44,000 bits so every every one of those points you either get one or zero that doesn't sound like a great way to actually describe a wave so you could say okay eight bits. You have 256 values. It's either zero or somewhere between zero and 255. So it's not a lot of data, but it's enough to, to, to at least build so, this waveform. So there's 255 bytes bits. per bit. Well, a bit is one. Isn't a byte eight? Uh, a byte is eight. Yeah. So 
Is this story with a bit or is this story with a bite? Each each one of these four hundred and forty-four point one thousand samples things, are they four hundred forty-one thousand bits or bytes? So that's a good question. It's actually that it's it's forty-four thousand one hundred bytes times four. But I'm just scaling up for you to understand the uh, the precision, right? So it could be that each one is a byte. And a byte can only store 8 bits, which is 256 values. Now, it could store 2 bytes, which would give you 65,536 values, which is a whole lot more accurate, right? Or, which is what most of them do today, although I'm not sure. Um, Some of them are 24-bit and some of them are 32-bit. But let's just, for the purpose of the discussion, say that it's 32-bit. So it's actually four bytes, 32 bits, or about 4.2 billion values. So that's how accurate the waveform could be, is that you could be anywhere, let's say, between zero and one of about four billion values. Now, obviously, there's some, because of the way floating numbers work, there's some shit there that makes it a little less accurate. But let's just, for the purpose of saying, you get about four billion values. It's probably closer to like one billion based on the way the accuracy works, but we'll just say it's four billion. So, um, and you can look that up. It's like two to, you just say two to the 32 and they're floating point numbers is what they call them. So blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. So the interesting thing there though, is that that's four bytes, four Bytes for every single one of those samples. So what you're looking at is for every second of data, you have four bytes times 44,100 samples. Okay. So that's approximately, I just did the math. um, It's 0.176 megabytes per second. Okay. So you basically, uh, let's just say for the purpose of discussion, one-fifth of a megabyte per second. Okay? So for your normal, let's say a song is normally three minutes, right? So we're going to multiply that by 60 by three minutes because that was per second. And then I'm going to go ahead and divide it by 1,024 uh, to pull out the... Oops, sorry, 1,024 times 1,024 to pull out the megabytes. Um, And so that comes to about 30 megabytes. And that's pretty reasonable. That's what we typically assume. Wave files for a song, I normally think are average about 40 megabytes. So I guess you could say about 10 megabytes per minute is what your song is going to look like. Okay, that's pretty precise. Humans cannot really discern 44.1 kilohertz. So that's pretty precise. But here's where we say, that's pretty heavy though, right? If you're listening to Spotify in your car and you listen all the way to Austin, (laughs) right? And you're doing 10 megabytes per minute. I don't want to do that calculation, but you're looking at gigabytes of data to listen to Spotify in your car on the way to Austin, right? Like multiple gigabytes. So here's where the Fourier transform comes in, and here's where we're going to do a little bit of calculus to make it fun. Um, But I'm going to not go too much into the calculus. So the first thing I want to ask you is, have you ever heard of Euler's equation? Uh, There was a lot of Euler stuff. I don't (laughs) know if I remember this one specifically. Cool. So Euler came up frequently. 
you should look this up. Everyone should look this up if they're interested. I'm going to have a video that we're going to put in the show notes um, to that expands on everything that I'm talking about today that actually shows you in video form what this what the Fourier transform actually does. Um, but basically, it's this really cool-ass thing that doesn't make any sense. There's another video on it about group theory. Um, but the identity is that E... Hopefully, if everyone took, uh, it should be Algebra 2, you should have E, which is the, you know, natural number E, uh, 2.71 or whatever. E to the I times a number. Okay? So I being the imaginary imaginary number, square root of negative 1. Equals the cosine of that number plus I times the sine of that number. So the way you typically say it is the cosine of I theta equals, sorry, E to the I theta equals the cosine of theta plus I sine theta. Now, that does not matter, right? Okay, so that, like, we're going to skip over that. The thing, the cool thing that that ends up doing, though, and if you want to, the first proof, it's not the true proof. A real proof is done in group with group theory, but the first proof that was ever done was done by Euler, and he used Taylor series. What you end up figuring out is if you do the Taylor series expansion of e to the i x, and you do the Taylor series expansion of the cosine of x and i times the sine of x, and you add those together, you get e to the i x. In a Taylor series. That was how the first proof was done, but it's not the true proof. It's more of like a, it's just cool that that also works. Um, anyway, the thing that's crazy about that though is what it basically can do is it can, if you think about it, if we learned in um, trigonometry that the cosine of a number as long as that number is in radians. So now I want everyone to close their eyes unless you're driving a car. But close your eyes and imagine a line on your on your eye wall, a horizontal line, kind of like the x-axis, right? And then you have your y-axis, which will be imaginary numbers. What e to the i theta does is that it maps that theta into a position along a circle in that plane. So if you think about it, the cosine of theta, so theta is zero, let's say. If theta is zero, right, the cosine of zero, now this is getting this some a little more heavy shit, but if you think about it, the cosine of theta, because we all know the cosine is the adjacent side, right? So the cosine of theta, if theta is zero, is one. The cosine of zero is one, right? And we all kind of remember that from from trigonometry. You've got that unit circle, right? So if your angle, so if you go to the right and you draw a line out to the number one on that horizontal axis, that angle between the horizontal axis and that line is zero. The cosine of zero is one, right? But then if you go around, if you go up by 90 degrees, we remember from trigonometry that 90 degrees is pi over 2. None of the numbers matter. It's the concept of how we go around that matters. Well, the cosine 
of pi over 2, that 90 degrees. So take that line and rotate it up to the y-axis, right? The adjacent side, the amount of that line that's on the x-axis is 0. So the cosine of theta there is 0. We can do the same thing with sine. So the sine, we remembered, is always the um, opposite, right? So Katoa, that's the opposite. So when you draw that line from 0 to 1 on the x-axis, the opposite is 0. The sine of 0 is 0. But then when you go up to the top, <laughs> you can look, Rob's giving me a face. Sine of zero is zero? Yes, the sine of zero is zero. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Cool. Sorry. But then when you start drawing that line up, right, the cosine part is still along the x-axis, and the sine part is every, the amount that, it, that that line, as you rotate up to the y-axis, is the amount of the opposite one, right? So the cosine is always the part that's on, that's, that's on the x-axis, that, that you can flatten to the x-axis, and the sine is always the part that you can flatten to the y-axis, right? So that's the really cool thing here, right, is that if you put a theta in e to the i theta, what's actually happening is you're mapping that number along that unit circle. So e to the i zero is an angle of zero, which is cosine theta, which is one, and plus i sine theta, which is zero. So it's one, okay? But if you do um, e to the i pi over two, again, I don't want you to care about radians, but pi over two is 90 degrees. That's when you rotate it, like imagine in your mind that you're rotating from the x-axis, rotating that line up to the y-axis, right? That's cosine of theta. Well, the amount on x is zero plus i times the sine of, of theta, which is one. So it's just i. So that's how you can map this angle any angle you put in there, you map onto that circle. So e to the i theta equals the cosine of theta plus i sine theta. Fucking cool shit. Literally, like Richard Feynman, for example, literally said that that equation is, quote, our jewel, unquote. It's one of the coolest things that, you know, simple proofs that's ever been discovered in mathematics. And... The fun part there is there's this cool thing called Euler's identity, which is that e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. And a lot of people, the reason why people love it is because it uses five of probably the most fundamental concepts, or sorry, constants in all of mathematics. It uses e, it uses i, it uses pi, it uses 1, and it uses 0. e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. So here's where the Fourier transform get, comes in. So... And so here's the fun part. What I don't want, what well, I'm going to tell you what the Fourier transform equation is, and I'm going to then completely not talk about it at all. Okay, I'm going to talk about what it does and why it's cool. So the Fourier transform is typically quoted as the integral from negative infinity to infinity of f of t 
times e to the negative 2 pi i t f dt. That doesn't matter. But what I want you to is be... T in that time? T in that is time. And f okay. actually is frequency. The oh, only so thing... It's, it's actually a equation that focuses on waves. Correct. And, and actually, it, it revolves around Euler's equation. Because if you listen to it, you heard an e to the negative 2 pi i in there. And what that's doing, the reason why you have that 2 pi in there is because then any numbers that you multiply by 2 pi in there always revolve once. So then, so then the way you can think of that Euler's identity, right, is that if I say e to the 2 pi i x, when x is 1, you've rotated around the unit circle once. When x is 2, you've rotated twice. When x is 3, you've rotated three times. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because every rotation, 2 pi, is a full rotation. So if you multiply it by 1, you get one rotation. If you multiply it by 2, you get two rotations. And in a lot of times, you'll call that multiplication a winding number. Now, uh, winding numbers have applications in other things that make it not a, an actual winding number. But it's kind of a winding number because you, what you're trying to describe is how many times you wind around that. Okay? So you notice that that's in there, and you notice that there's, there's an integral. Those are the only two things that matter, right? That that identity, rotating something around this circle, is in there, and then an integral is in there. And all you have to understand about integrals is that they take sums under the curve. That's really all that matters. So here's what we're going to do. Look back at your wall, your mind wall, and think of a wave. And I want you to even see numbers on that wave. I want you to see a wave where there's a peak at 1, and then there's a peak at 2, and there's a peak at 3. Like, actually envision it in your mind, and there's a peak 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way to 10. So you've got in your mind between 0 and 10, you've got this sine wave, which I hope everyone has seen, something like that, a wave. And there's a peak 1, 2, 3, 4. What we're going to do is we are going to wind. We're going to wind that function around zero. So what I want you to imagine is just the first two peaks, one and two. It's going and, zero to one, zero to two, zero to three. Correct. Let's say negative. Let's say not negative. It really okay. doesn't. It actually doesn't matter too much. But for the purpose of this, we'll say. I'm trying to visualize from, a wave. Yeah, trying to visualize it. Let's say it's a, a completely above the curve, right? That's actually how the video I'm going to recommend does it. Is that the wave? Sorry, is a completely above the x-axis to get rid of any negative numbers. Okay. And what I want you to imagine is that we take those first. Let's just take those first two humps. Okay. And imagine pulling them out and winding them around the the uh center point okay so basically you've got two bunny ears right so instead of the wave being drawn along the x-axis it's going to be drawn around a circle does that make sense so you're you're going to kind of draw a sine wave up and it's going to come down and you're going to draw a sine wave up and it's going to come down does that make sense so it's yep. going to look kind of like bunny ears for those first two. And maybe for the next two, it's going to even, you know, they'll be just inverted bunny ears and they'll just keep going around. 
And so, so then when it eventually connects back at the first one, it'll look kind of like a daffodil. Correct. So and and so this is this is where it gets fun. What you decide then is how to stretch those bunny ears along um along that circle, right? So what what happens is basically what's happening and if you visualize it the video does a good di- a good job of this, but as you go along time on the x-axis for that wave, you're going through angles on this circle. So you're drawing the same graph, but instead of drawing along a straight x-axis, you're drawing along a circle. Okay? That is what the e to the negative 2 pi i f t is doing. It's just taking that function of t, that sine wave, and drawing it along a circle. That's all it's doing. Okay? And then that f, that t is time, that f in there is um, how many times you draw your graph around the circle, how many times you wind it. So if f equals 1, let, actually, let's make f equal 1 half, right? So that's actually how you're going to end up getting these kind of like bunny ears. Because as you go 1 half of a second, right, you're going to get this like big curve kind of thing, Okay. It might be easier if I just say we do like 10 or something like that, right? So if we say it's 10, then you're going to draw 10 humps around, you know, around that circle, right? At one, at one would it just be a circle? Ah. Uh, almost. Correct. So that's the cool thing. What you end up finding out, what ends up happening, and the video that I'm going to recommend does a good job of showing this, is it's mostly jumbled. It mostly looks like these weird clovers and stuff, and it starts to overlap and blah, blah, blah. So if you go between zero and one half, let's say, it's mostly going to be this big thing that starts to coalesce into more stuff. Or if you go from 10 down towards one, like 10 is going to be a bunch of shit all wound around, like how many times do you go through one period or whatever. Right, so, yeah, anyway, um, what ends up happening, and this is the cool thing, is that as you approach one, it starts to get lopsided. So before, you've got just all of these humps drawn around a circle, right? You can imagine that, you've just got all these humps. But as you get towards one, those humps start to coalesce in one area and it's in this case as long as you're using cosine it'll actually be right along the x-axis and that's where the integral comes in so at tell me this if i've got let's say a thousand humps all drawn in this circle and i tell you to integrate it okay you've got humps going up humps going down you've got humps in all these directions where do you think the center of that integral is. Uh, so let me let me put it this way. If I ask you to do the integral of a straight line on the x-axis from one, that's just one, from zero to one, you're going to draw the area between that line at one all the way to one. And then let me say, now I want you to do it on the other side, the negative side. The integral of that whole thing is going to be zero. 
Right, so I thought we had to have any negative numbers, but I guess what you're saying is you're drawing on the center, and so you're yeah. doing a circle in the center, so you're going to end up back at zero because as many humps as are on the bottom is going to be the same number of humps that are on the top. Correct. And Sorry, so each, we're going to do each... no negative numbers for the inputs for the sine wave, but on the outputs, we're going to have to wind around this circle that's centered at zero. Yeah, so but you're right. With zero, you have, because what, so the only time you're not going to end up with zero is if you did 999 winds. Because then, or any odd number of wines. Oh, maybe not, though. So, good point. When you do odd number of wines, you'll get a little bit of off zero, but not a lot. What happens, though, is that if you do, um, when you land on one, they all line up. And that integral shifts. So, before, you've just got this jumble of humps. Right, You've just got all these humps, and the integral is close to zero. The area, there's some on top, some on bottom. At the end of the day, it, it's real close to zero. It wobbles around a little bit as you change that winding. right? But eventually, when that winding gets to one, it, they're all going to line up on one side. right? And the reason for that is because they're all humps at one. Right, so if you wind at one, wind at one, wind at one, each hump is now directly across the same area everywhere. And you can think the same thing if you do a frequency of two. Right, so if you change the humps to be at one half, one, one and one half, two, two and one half, three, right, you'll see all of those humps line up when you get to two. Okay, so they'll all be a jumble at zero, they'll be a jumble at one, they'll be a jumble at ten. But at two, because all of those humps, right, at one, you still have the opposite ones counteracting it, right? So as much as you have the ones that are, you know, that you would think were on the ones, one, one, like one, two, three, four, five, pulling it to the right, you're going to have the one halves and stuff pulling it the opposite way because they're the exact opposite. Right, so at one you're not going to get a big you're not going to get a big shift, but at two they're all going to line up. They all have to face the same direction once you wind the graph around twice. Right, if you wind it around once, all the ones, all the humps that are on the one will face right, and all the humps that are on the one halves will face left. Right, but if you wind it around twice, then all the ones. The humps that are on one will be to the to the right, and the ones that are on one half will be in the same place because you wound it around twice, right? Think that for four or ten. Let's say it's ten, right? Let's say we put a hump at 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, so on and so forth. When you wind it around, right, you're going to have all these jumbles. But right when you get to ten, all of those humps will have been around, wound around enough to where they'll all be facing the same way. So that is the essence of the Fourier transform. You take the sine wave, you take your audio input, and you multiply it by e to the negative 2 pi i ft for various f's to get this function of where that center of mass is. Then you take the integral and that's how you get that center of mass. That's how you get the, you know, is it near zero or has it been pulled off to the side, right? And what you do is you plug in a bunch of Fs, right? So I like, I don't know what the uh, Hertz is here. So I wind it around 
I wind it, wind it at zero. I wind it one, two, three, four, five, ten, fifty, whatever, right? And as I go through all of those different f's and I compute this same integral, most of the time, it's just going to be wobbling around zero. But every once in a while, it's going to, or at a certain point, it's going to shift to the right. And that is what the Fourier transform is. You've got the e to the negative 2 pi i ft to wind it around that circle. And you've got the integral to compute that center of mass. And so what you can do is a few things, or a lot of things, actually. Um, what you find in audio, for example, oh, so here's one thing I forgot to piece out. Let's say we take two tones. Let's take, uh, so 10 hertz is 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5, right? And let's take uh, 5 hertz, uh, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0 0.6, whatever, right? Let's take both of those. If you do the Fourier transform on a sound that's been transposed, or sorry, that's been, uh, I can't think of the word, not transposed, um, just you play 5 hertz and 10 hertz at the same time. The Fourier transform will just be like kind of wiggling around zero, and then at 5, it'll go up, and then at 10, it'll go up for the same reason. Around 5, you're going to get all those heights of the 5 that are part of the total signal, while the tens are still are hovering around zero, exactly, so they're While not the, really exactly because they're not really contributing very much to that Fourier transform. That's exactly what's happening, right? And that's why even when two pitches are exactly double of each other, you can still pull them apart because the ten is not contributing anything when you get around five when you do the Fourier transform. The thing is, is that. If you have enough data, you could do this for theoretically an infinite number of tones. So you could say this is 440, 444, and 506, and 1812. And every, every different frequency, you can decompose that input if you have enough data, right? So this is where it ties back into a 30 megabyte wave file for three minutes. So you don't send the 30 megabyte wave file. You send Correct. the location of the center of mass and the integral. Kind of. Instead of, not even that, you go one step further. What you do is you perform the Fourier transform on little bits of the sample, right? So instead of taking, um, let's say, I don't know what the human sampling rate is. That's actually a good question. Like what do human ears sample at? But instead of taking points at 44.1 kilohertz, um, if you think about it, let, let's put it this way. Let's say humans can only reasonably hear every tenth of a second. That's probably not, that's definitely not true, but let's just say. 44.1 kilohertz is way overkill. But if you only draw a sine wave at one tenth of a second points, You've got no data. You've got these random dots in random places. You have no waveform at all, right? Like all of your dots could be above the line, even though half of them should be below the line, right? <laughs> Just because that's how you randomly pulled, pulled dots out, right? <clears throat> so what works better instead is taking little chunks of time and saying, instead of just pulling 
little little dots of where the waveform is during this time. Let's, for a tenth of a second, pull out all of the pieces of the of the audio waveform into its component parts. Right? So instead of saving the exact, you know, deflection of the diaphragm at 44.1 thousand different points per second, you say, I'm going to sample a tiny bit, a tiny portion of the audio. I'm going to take the waveform from zero seconds to one one hundredth of a second. So that's still what, 441 points, right? That's that's a waveform with 441 points. You put that through the fast Fourier transform, and even that, that's 441 points times 32 bits per point, right? Instead, you just say, during this one hundredth of a second period, I ran that waveform through a fast Fourier transform. Right, and I knew that over that one hundredth of a second, it was mo- because the peaks of some of these things will also um, give you the intensity. You just store the the frequency and the intensity of that frequency, right? So if you have ten hertz at volume one and five hertz at volume one half, the five hertz will show up as a shorter peak on the Fourier transform than the ten hertz. Right, so what you then end up saying saving is 440 hertz at intensity 0.8, um, you know, 212 hertz at intensity 0.1, um, you know, and then 800 hertz at a te- intensity 0.05 or whatever. And you do make I don't know what MP3s do, the top three, the top five, the top ten. Basically, there's going to be some algorithm to determine that depending on what bit rate you want. So MP3s go the opposite way. Instead of saying the number of samples you want, you just say, I want this bit rate. And it tries to do the best algorithm it can to to sample the shortest windows of time and get the most number of, you know, Fourier transform decompositions in that amount of time. So what you end up getting is all of these kind of like little samples of one one hundredth of a second. You should play these three tones together. And what's cool is if you know the tones and their intensity, you can go backwards. You can create the original waveform, right? And actually, if you if you were to store the full Fourier transform, you could go back to the quote-unquote exact waveform, but you don't even care about the exact waveform. You just want 99% of it, right? You want enough frequencies and intensities to get to 99% of the waveform. And if you store those, if you think about it, the frequency is going to be, let's say it's Let's whatever. Fuck it. Make it 32 bits. The frequency is 32 bits and the intensity, let's say, is even 32 bits. But that is, and let's say you store 10, right? So that's 10, so that's 20 32-bit things for a hundredth of a second, whereas a wave file for the same amount of time is 441 32-bit things that you have to save, right? So that's a factor of 20 or 22, whatever you want to say, right, of compression. So MP3 probably, because MP3 is about a tenth, so they probably do more like, uh, you know, two hundredth of a second sample size, or they, you know, store 20 
uh, decompositions of the Fourier transform rather than 10 or whatever it is, right? So there's going to be different ways. And if you do 320 kilobits per second instead of 128 kilobits per second, they're going to store smaller windows or whatever. Um, and obviously there's more. You have variable bitrate ones that'll actually kind of say, this part of the audio is so intense, I'm going to do smaller windows and more Fourier uh, transform data. And then in, in a dead silent spot, it will say the window is six seconds long. Like let's say there's literally no audio there. It would just, Wave would save 441,000 times six data points. MP3, a variable bitrate MP3 would probably just be like literally one, like a hundred bytes to describe that, you know, almost nothing. Um, so anyway, I wanted to talk about I wanted to get people excited about math in ways that is a little out there. And no, like seriously, the Fourier transform is advanced mathematics. Like it is solidly in the calculus to complex variable space of mathematics. But I just wanted to show how like elegant something like that can be. That if you just, the way that you wind the function around a circle and then use the center of how the center of mass of that winding changes to decompose the frequencies of that function is so fucking cool, right? And the fact that you can then use that to create MP3s and JPEGs and all kinds of other things is just so cool to me. Um, and so I wanted to talk about a way in which calculus affects you daily in, in, in a subject matter that's like super advanced, but also pretty easy to grasp if you just take 30 minutes to think about it. So there's two heroes in that story. Uh -huh. Yeah. There's the guy who came up with the Fourier transfer, which I'm assuming yeah. transform, which was probably in the 1800s to early 1900s. Uh, that I don't know. Let's look it up. History, 1822. Very good. Very nice. Um, and then the second hero would be the guy that figured out how to apply that to compression. Like how is he, he was like, okay, I know this thing. And I know this other thing being mathematics and probably early on coding. Yep. And he um, was like, how can, like, like, there were probably other people in the world that were familiar with the transform and coding, but they never thought to use one with the other for such a, like, compressing files is the reason why the internet works. Like, yeah. <laughs> the amount of data it would take to send, like, a actual high-quality digital camera image mm -hmm. is unreasonably large for internet and phone browsing purposes. Everything yep. has to be compressed. Audio yep. files are the same way. <laughs> yep. And so these compression methods, which have gotten better over time... It's so, funny because like if the, if no one had ever figured that out, they would have to have such fat internet tubes <laughs> to transfer the amount of data that would be needed for the internet as we know it to still exist. So here's this is actually kind of interesting. What I'm looking up is that. Um, so I was a little bit wrong. In 1822, Joseph Fourier showed that some functions could be written as an infinite sum of harmonics. So he described like the mathematical um you know uh, i guess 
the rigorous mathematics around the Fourier transform. But check this out. The first fast Fourier transform, which is like an algorithm used to compute it quickly on computers. So when, when your computer compresses an MP3, it doesn't actually do any of those <coughs> excuse me, integrals or anything like that. It does an algorithm that approximates it. Um, but the first fast Fourier transform algorithm was discovered around 1805 by Friedrich Gauss, Carl Friedrich Gauss. So that's interesting. Should we call it Gauss transform then? I guess Gauss has so many other things already named after yeah. and didn't need anything else. Another one of those famous mathematicians that you hear about all the time. It's funny yeah. to me because like these guys, you have to get into math to have heard of, but once you're into math, you hear of them a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, if you're not into math, the guys you hear about are Newton and Einstein. Yeah. Who, while important, come up less frequently. Like yeah, they're yeah. So Newton's Einstein laws is... you talk about. Newton's laws you talk about in physics one, and it's kind of a fundamental in the back of your head all the time past that. But like, yeah. there's so many different things named after Gauss and Euler that just like every math class has some new like. Euler's formula is a worthless like thing to yeah, say because there's like true. ten of them. That's true. So uh, that's actually an interesting point. I think the thing, the reason why Newton, for example, gets shafted, is because most shafted of his shafted or celebrated. Yeah, well, I guess that's true. I guess he is celebrated, but none of those things are named after him, right? But most people attribute calculus to him and uh, what's his face. I feel yeah, bad. The, the Russian guy that gets yeah, forgotten all or, the time. Or, Aust- or maybe Newton was Austrian or whatever. Oh, shit. It's kind of like the... the, the I, I can't uh, think of... Anyway, go ahead. Kind of like the uh, Edison and Tesla conversation where... Yeah. Like, Tesla was way more, like, revolutionary in his findings, but Edison is the one that became famous because he wasn't a massive asshole and kind <laughs> of a bad guy. You mean Edison was a massive asshole. I mean, but and Tesla had his issues as, as well. True, true. Uh, Leibniz is the... I well, always yeah. forget his name. But but yeah, like... So... There's some controversy over who actually discovered calculus, and they both discovered it seemingly separately. I don't know. Anyway. Um, but Euler and Gauss and all of them were in an era of mathematics in which... So many news discoveries were coming so often, they started just naming them after the people who discovered them, right? Um, and there was a little bit of that before before then, but um, you know, I feel like it's more of the, the the age in which those discoveries were made rather than the importance of those discoveries. <laughs> Next week, we are we going to try to are we going to try to wrap up Infinite Jest, or you you think you want more time? Dude, I don't I don't know if I can do it. I, I I'd prefer more time because I'm trying. Next week, we'll see where we are with Infinite Jest, and <laughs> cool. perhaps if you ever plan on reading it, check the intro to that episode before you might skip it because there's going to be spoilers if that should happen. I'd which like... seems unlikely. So here's the thing. Worst case scenario, you catch on up on podcasts for a week. I'm gonna finish this thing. Um, All right. <laughs> like, 
Like, I, I'm showing Aaron. Oh, not dang! You're and close. And a lot of what's left there is the end notes. End notes, yeah, like half of what's left. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're that that's coming. We actually might follow through on a thing we said we were gonna do. Um, other than that, visit us on Facebook. So, got nothing. Um, on Facebook, Gmail. Uh, still got nothing. You could send Aaron a tweet directly. You can tweet at the Still Got Nothing account. <laughs> Maybe. True. Um, other than that, uh, I don't. I don't have anything else that we need to say. We had a massively long intro, so I think that yeah. probably covers most of what we can need to cover in the outro. One last thing I wanted to say is that while I was playing golf with Brent, I um. I made. I elected to put my foot into an ant pile while elected? I was taking a sh- while I was taking a shot. Okay. Um, fire ants suck, man. I've got True. probably twenty or thirty bites right around my ankle. Oh shit! And I spent a lot of the podcast applying itch ointment hey, to myself. You, you want to know something a little bit relevant to what we discussed last week? Hmm. Washington, or at least the Seattle area, does not have fire ants. Actually, the ants that I deal with are pretty chill. I almost feel bad spraying around the house because they're not bothering anyone. They're just being. Um, whereas in Texas, you know, when you when you see an ant pile and you can spray the shit out of it, you're like, this is this is bettering the earth. This is, you know, what I'm saying. For me, I'm like kind of sad that I have to kill off these ants. After they genetically yep. modify mosquitoes to make themselves extinct, fire ants need to be next. Yeah. I'm all for the mosquito extinction. Aaron, are there any other creatures you'd like to eliminate from the Earth? Probably, but let's just say I got nothing. 